Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. Imagine an engineering design environment where AI does 60 to 70% of the work and humans finish the rest. Tasks get automated. Things happen faster. Productivity increases. Well, as my guest today will tell you, in some places, we're already there. But looking into the future, he doesn't see an environment void of humans. Instead, he pictures one where humans are effectively superhuman. Let me introduce him. With over 25 years of experience in advanced manufacturing, Milan Kosik is currently the founder and head of Sixth Sense Open Innovation Platform at Hexagon Manufacturing Intelligence. Milan's mission is to create an environment where startups can explore possibilities for growth with Hexagon's wide network of products, services, and customers. He himself has spent the last 15 years bringing many innovative new products and services like Pulse and MyCare to market and is an owner of more than 30 patents in many different areas of advanced manufacturing. Milan, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing well, and it's great to have you here. I was excited about our conversation a few weeks ago, and we were kind of prepping for this. And yeah, we're going to get into it here right away. Yeah, you just get a prize for just saying all that stuff about a title and all the entities. So there we go. But that was great. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I've had bios to read that were about five times that long and with lots of hard things to pronounce and stuff. So yours was fairly easy there. I just had to make sure I got your name right. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, great. Milan, can you kick things off by telling us a little bit more about your background and what the Sixth Sense Accelerator Program is all about at Hexagon? Sure. I'm one of those probably somewhat unusual people these days that has been at the same company for two decades and plus, because you don't meet as many people doing those kinds of things. But even in doubt, even those two decades plus, I've managed to do many different things. So I think kind of like my career has gone from being a technical guy because I'm an engineer and an MBA by education. I did nine years of commercial work. So I sold software all over the United States and Mexico. And then I switched into product and innovation, which is where most of my last decade has been spent. While doing that in a large successful corporate like Hexagon, you find certain limitations, which is the corporations have to deliver results every quarter. And they're much more focused on incremental innovation than kind of giant leaps and disruptive kind of stuff. It's hard to execute. Not that they don't care for it, it's just it's hard to execute. And Second thing I noticed is we didn't really have an organized way to work with startups. We would talk to them, but there would be no real conduit to bring them into the organization and to help kind of scale them and grow them. So in essence, we, me and another person pitched six cents to our CEO and he said, well, go try it. So see what happens. And we are now about to kick off cohort three. We've been in existence for roughly two years. 
and have two cohorts behind our back in order to do stuff. And we typically recruit post-seed, seed A kind of companies, and we try to see what we can do with them during the program as to where is the fit. And then we try to figure out what to do after the program ends. So technically, it's an accelerator, but it's also an open innovation. It straddles in between two kind of the different ways of working with startups. Interesting. And every company here is technology sort of in or around manufacturing. Is that the idea? We typically issue a challenge like a typical accelerator would. And then we try to find companies in those areas of interest for us. So far, all 15 that went through two cohorts are advanced manufacturing or, you know, industrial tech for the lack of better descriptor for it. Sure. Okay. Well, I know one of the recent winners of your program is a pretty fascinating robotics company called Gelsite. I'd love to hear a little bit about what they're up to and what made them stand out from the pack. Sure. Gelsite was the winner of cohort two. They're a startup that's about, which is kind of funny, it's a startup that's 11 years old. Usually when you say startup, everybody thinks, oh my God, they just got formed last year. No. So these guys have been around for 11 years. It's two guys out of MIT that basically build something called a measurable skin technology or something. It's basically a gel that has a camera behind it. And when you press the gel against the surface, you can detect deformities from 0.2 microns up to 20 microns. So large range of deformities as you do. They did it just as an experiment and the gel is like the secret sauce. But when they started working it, this one was typical MIT projects, which then eventually they figured out what to do with it which is they built a device that helps essentially measure scratches, dents, surface roughness, surface finish, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where they started. So they've been kind of doing that for the last eight, 10 years. Most of their customers are in aerospace, but in the last two years, they got injected some VC money. So they're spreading their wings into other areas. So the actual gel and the sensor that they make could, basically now they're doing prototypes, could be used as fingers for robots or as a gripper, which means that you can sense the pressure. You can also sense the material that they pick up with the robots themselves. So the idea they have is that eventually you're adding a real touch to a robot out there so that the robots themselves can essentially have a lower learning curve about feeling things, touching things, or having a handle very fragile, sensitive materials as they do so, which means you can put them into more applications than you otherwise would. So it's kind of an interesting journey from where they started, where they're going, and who knows where they'll end up. Because one of the things they've been thinking about is you can add it to prosthesis to medical devices, which is if you add touch, you can somehow make humans feel that touch. It gets easier for them to learn how to walk, to learn how to feel things, to learn how. So there's, you know, it's typical journey of an idea that sometimes ends up going into many, many different directions. I think they have cosmetics applications. There's other things that they're looking at as to what it can do with the device. But the primary connection to us and why they want cohort two is two things. They build actual prototype of device working with hexagon technology. And secondarily, their primary existence is a metrology device, which fits really well to the DNA of Hexagon, which is measurement and metrology and quality. So, you know, once in a blue moon, you find those really, really perfect fits, which is what made them kind of very attractive to us. But the journey just started. So who knows where it will end as we go forward. Wow, it's so fascinating. It's really cool when you see these applications that you can see how they'd work in a manufacturing setting. You can also see how they'd work in a human setting like you just described there. I imagine you're just looking inside of so many interesting technology companies right now doing this thing at Sixth Sense. And I'm just kind of curious to hear what are some of the trends you're seeing right now across industrial startups, whether that's in robotics or elsewhere technology-wise. 
I would say there's a gamut of things that are happening. Mostly, there's this thing we always say that technologically, nothing is impossible anymore. Like when you look at the world out there from a technology perspective, just about anything you can think of is doable. I think the biggest and most neglected opportunity does lie in advanced manufacturing and industrial tech. I think we've kind of lingered along and limbered along with how things are just because they work. You know, so why bother changing things? I think there's a couple of things that have started pushing that change in general, especially in the U.S., because U.S. and Europe are slightly different. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later is onshoring of manufacturing. I think one of the only sectors that has grown since COVID has been manufacturing. I mean, and not a little bit, by leaps and bounds. I think, what, three and a half million new jobs or something in manufacturing. So there is obviously significant amount of work being put in in trying to onshore all this stuff that we offshored for the last 30 years as it is. And even though there is significant amount of employment in manufacturing, there's not enough people regardless. So as you look at what a modern factory is supposed to look like, there's a two emphasis. One is automation. How do we automate just about anything we do? That in itself causes problems because I think you and I have seen, we can probably count how many videos and probably in hundreds of this factory animation that is just robots everywhere. And there's like nobody there and there's no humans. That's not the future that I see. I see that the future is more collaborative nature where you'll see robotics and robotic execution and humans being complemented and let's say, you know, making them superhuman by the power of robotics. So that automation of the future is a combination of two things together, which hopefully addresses the worker shortage. That's one. And then the second one is AI and in some sense, you know, generative AI for design, for production, for a take a pick of any task. The things I've seen in last few trade shows, including like Hanover in Germany, is that AI is helping essentially do 60, 70% of the work and then humans finish the rest. So inherently, that means that the tasks get more automated, they get sped up, productivity increases, and everything else kind of starts to fall in place. But the vision I see is not the one where humans somehow disappear from all this stuff. I see that they just become, let's say, enhanced in what they do. So probably those are the two biggest trends we are seeing from what's affecting other things, which is the robotics, AI, and automation, and where it goes. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that. It's a topic that's come up quite a bit on my podcast across a variety of people I've talked to. I had Harry Moser on a while back talking about the reshoring initiative. And you know, I remember conducting that interview and thinking to myself, like, I mean, this is fantastic, bringing all these jobs back that have been gone for so long and fixing supply chain issues as a result of that. But who's going to do the work, right? And I've had quite a few people from a variety of angles in automation. I've had a variety of people talk about, you know, how do we get young people into the workforce and help parents understand that there's a future here that's not dirty, dark, and dangerous. And so I heard people talk about it from a bunch of different angles, but I like hearing it directly from you here and from the standpoint of manufacturing technology and robotics. To me, is one of the fundamental challenges facing American manufacturing today is that sort of tug between bringing work back and who's going to do the work. I think it starts at middle school, high school. If you take a parallel looking at Germany, for example, looking at US, in Germany, apprenticeship manufacturing is something people are proud of. It's well paid. It's really high level of education. You learn a lot of things and you have a career that then parlays you into manufacturing, which you can then eventually, you know, become a CTO, CEO. There's many, many different paths how people achieve that. What I've noticed, and now I have an 11 year old, is that at American schools, just about 
nobody talks about manufacturing as a path. There is literally no program that, I mean, there's stuff like in Wisconsin, for example, technical school education programs are pretty good and they tend to foster and push. And because this is why manufacturing in Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and some of the other areas is more advanced than its other areas of the U.S. But regardless of that, on a national level, I think the perception of manufacturing is there's a talk I gave at the Dreamforce or Salesforce like a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And I used a clip from modern times because there was a full room of people. And I said, this is probably what you guys think manufacturing looks like. And you see Charlie Chaplin going like this. Yeah. And it's black yes. and white. Everything is super dirty and they like all this stuff. And I said, if you ask any kid or ask any parent, this is what they technically think manufacturing looks like. And then I showed them an image where you had people, you know, walking around, there's robots, they're using AR goggles. I mean, there's all this technology. And what is missing is that somehow the high technology and advancement is the ownership of Silicon Valley and the next Facebook and the next whatever Twitter and something like that, which if you boil it down, it's all about advertising and clicking on things. I think that the real meat of any national power is manufacturing. If you don't make stuff, you cease to exist as a powerful nation. You have to make things, which means you have to have a workforce that is educated, that there is a value in it. And I'll give you one last anecdote is we knew a woman who owned the company out of all places, North Dakota. So it's not the world's nicest place in the world, unless you're like hunting and driving in flat plains. But she had openings for robotics engineers that she was paying in well in six figures, and she could not recruit anybody. Because to her, everybody wanted to do something somewhere else where, you know, it was going for clean technology versus what she was doing, which is she makes parts for Bobcat and a bunch of other things. And she was like, I'm paying well. I mean, in North Dakota, with six figures, you can live really, really nicely. And she's saying is, I'm not asking you to come here and work for the rest of your life, but start your career here. You'll get the experience and then you can go somewhere else and do something else. And I think our attitudes toward manufacturing, what are the biggest hurdles for onshoring? Nothing else. And I think we have to shift and tell kids, it's okay to work in a factory. They do really cool things. Let's see where they go. Yeah, I'm 100% on board with what you're talking about. There are some really great voices out there right now. Some of them have been on this show. I've mentioned them before. Megan Zimba. Andrew Crow, there are a couple who come to mind who I think are just leading the way with connecting with the kids who are in middle school, high school, helping them understand what jobs are out there. I've spoken with some people I have coming up soon on my show is going to be Terry Iverson. He's written some books on the topic. He's in Illinois and Matt Goosey up in Wisconsin. You mentioned Wisconsin as a place where maybe people are doing a little better with some of this, but he's co-running Cardinal Manufacturing inside of a high school. I mean, an actual machine shop inside of a high school in like Northwest Wisconsin. And these are the types of things that I think we need the spotlight to be on this because so much of it's what people don't know, you know? Well, this conversation needs to be raised a little bit more of a national level into spotlighting the opportunities and things there are in manufacturing and kind of getting out of, you know, you and I both know when you say manufacturing, most people think blue collar jobs. That's how it typically is associated. And it's, I think, if a perception changes, and you mentioned some of the voices that, that I'm also aware of, and hopefully, you know, it takes time. But hopefully, with that time, things will change. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. 
Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Well, let's shift gears here, Milan, and talk a little bit about generative AI. I just think this topic's, I mean, it's everywhere right now, right? In the news. And a lot of it's been, you know, a lot of what you hear about is in regard to the written word. And, you know, many of us myself and you, I'm sure, have begun experimenting a bit with what that looks like. But what I'm really interested in and haven't heard a whole lot about yet on this podcast is how is generative AI going to find its way into sort of engineering and product design in the years ahead? The obvious and the one I've seen already is in design engineering. So making stuff and designing parts. I'm at the startup that hopefully will be part of cohort three, not sure yet, out of Luxembourg called the Raffinex. And what Raffinex does is they use AI to essentially, you know, help with the generative design of a part. So they use AI, they have a part, and then ask AI, make this more efficient, better, more sustainable, give it to me in different materials, let me know what it will do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The product also calculates sustainability effects at the same time. So it will tell you, because if, for example, if you have a lighter weight, if you have less material, it means less money to transport. There's all kinds of other effects you have if you do parts that are equal strength with less material. There's also a startup out of our second cohort called Castor, which what it does is you feed all of your part libraries into their engine, and it will tell you what you can 3D print, what you cannot 3D print, which parts can you combine. So you don't have to make three parts, but you can just make one part and then tell you what's the effect on yield and cost and everything else that happens there. I think. While somewhat boring, those are the real things where AI can help essentially certain assignments. Because think about it this way, open AI and similar kind of libraries, what they tend to work on is subsets of data. So if you think about it, if you're an aerospace company, start feeding only aerospace data into the system and let it learn. And once it learns, you can start spitting out parts that are better strength, more efficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, take a pick of what happens. There's a little bit of a risk there because gender of the design tends to think the same way based on what he learned from. So certainly you can start seeing things that look exactly the same across the board. So you still have to have a human touch at the end of the day. But imagine being an engineer and you get a 75% finished part. Tells you that this is already taken care of. We already ran a simulation on its strength. We ran some fluid dynamic simulation, blah, blah, blah. We've done all this stuff. You just have to do your final touches, make sure everything works. I think that is ultimately what will happen in advanced manufacturing, that a lot of, for lack of a better word, call it boring work, will be done by AI. I think you still need the judgment from an engineer. You still need people to check and you still need people to finally say, yes, that's okay. 
imagine generate AI design to basically give you three options and tell me which option would you like? Do you want this option that's lightest and cheapest, but potentially has a strength issue here? Or do you want this that's one slightly more expensive, but it does that? So I think you still have humans to make some business-minded decisions about what they're trying to make and the technological decisions because it fits into larger parts. So where I see it is initially complementing what design engineers do as they project what I think. Now you can downstream it as a startup out of Sweden called NQ, which is for CNC machines. They can extremely fast in milliseconds, check the cutting paths and then tell you how to improve it, where you're going to shave off more material, you know, and those kinds of things. But there are big advantages that they can do that in a millisecond versus waiting minutes and minutes for AI to kind of finish things. Their AI does it much, much, much faster. So those are just a few little examples from three startups I've met that talk about speeding up the process of making, designing, producing parts as they come along, you know, as to what happens. So we can just imagine that there's probably hundreds more that I've never heard of that are doing similar things converging into some sort of a future where generative AI kind of helps people do stuff faster and better. Yeah, that's really interesting. My follow-up question there was going to be, and I think you kind of started to answer it, but you know, we're starting to see some of these applications take shape. Maybe in the years ahead, it's going to be about how do we create more efficiencies? How do we complement the skills and speed up some of the things, replace some of the grinding work, I guess, that doesn't require a human to be doing. But how far do you think they'll push looking out a decade or two? I'm just curious. What's your crazy future vision of where I will find its way into engineering and manufacturing? Yeah, I mean, I'm 52, so I got a little bit more than 10 years before retirement. So if I was to get what happens by the time I retire, I am not a believer that you're going to walk up to a computer and say, design me a plane. Like, I don't think that's a realistic future to think about. I'm sure AI could be able to do that, but it's going to be a weird looking plane, most likely. And whether it's actually going to fly will be a second question. But I think walking up to a computer and say, you know, design me a holder plate for the winglet of the right side with this kind of performance, and then AI goes out and gives you 30 options. It's probably a realistic scenario where AI can actually do. And then you as an engineer, kind of as I earlier said, you come back and you pick one. But that means that instead of you spending three days to design something, you've just spent 20 minutes designing something. So the amount of time you save, which is also, I don't know if it's a good or bad thing, which means that product cycles will probably increase, sorry, decrease, increase meaning in speed and decrease in length. So suddenly you'll have more products happening faster. So from that perspective, I think that's the fantasy. The fantasy that I see is ultimately headless factories. And what I mean by that, you walk through, you have some nice glasses, but they look like this. They don't look like, you know, big helmets on your head. And you look at this device and you say, tell me what's the optimal operation of this, tells you what's happening You're over here. So suddenly you have a factory in your head, in a sense. So which means that information is just interconnected at all levels. And AI helps draw conclusion out of that information to run all the operations more efficiently and in time, ultimately. Because you and I both have been to factories and I've seen machines from 1957 still in operation, which is one of the biggest issues in advanced manufacturing, if I forward 10 years, is that there's a crap load of legacy equipment sitting still around in many places. And to automate that and to move that a decade forward is a huge effort for a lot of these operations. So 
I'm a little bit more grounded. You know, I don't believe we'll have drones running around factories and we'll design stuff in metaverse and everything else. You know, that will help, but it will not end anything that's already happening today. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see, I guess, your retirement whenever you get there, hopefully 10 years or sooner, right? <laughs> we'll, uh, you'll be sitting back observing all these things taking shape even at a greater level than we're seeing today. We'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, I'll, I'll sit there and go, I knew it. I, I knew it. it. I called it. I was on Joe <laughs> Sullivan's podcast back in 2023 making these calls. Yes, so exactly. Yeah, there you go. Awesome. So, you know, we've talked about a few different things here. We've talked about challenges with manufacturing, you know, this c- convergence of the reshoring initiative and yet not having the people to do it and the negative perception associated with manufacturing from those who are outside of it. We've talked about AI and super advanced manufacturing technology. It feels like you put those things together and you've got something to talk to the future workforce about that's a lot more appealing than what they think of with manufacturing. So just kind of curious to hear you talk about what do we need to be teaching the future workforce about technology and its role in manufacturing? That's a great question. You probably probably do a whole other podcast just on that question. But I would say the future of manufacturing and people who are coming into manufacturing, that they need to be taught the same lessons that anybody else in technology doing for other things, which is that ultimately almost nothing is impossible, which is the fact that how factories do things today does not mean how they'll do it tomorrow. And they can be the people who make that change and participate in. I mean, I think what's come out of the last three, four years is that manufacturing is probably one of the biggest segments that is due for rebirth in a certain way from a technological perspective and many other ways. And that doesn't necessarily just mean from how we make stuff. It also means how we design things and how we sell things and everything else that happens around it. And I think kids of tomorrow should not just think that doctor, lawyer, or working for Apple is the ultimate goal for anybody. I think ultimately you can do almost all kinds of similar things with greater effect. I've been fortunate enough that I've been to so many manufacturing companies that I have seen things that I would have never seen if I did not work in the segments I work in. And that means you know, going to either Department of Defense or going to automotive or going to other companies and seeing stuff that is the stuff that's going to be out in the market in five years, in 10 years. So you can get to see the future yourself if you go into manufacturing, because stuff that's working on now in manufacturing might not see the light of day for another several years. And you want to see the future? Go work in manufacturing and get to see a lot of future being in manufacturing. So I think that's now as, as I was answering a question, that's maybe the way to talk to kids about the future, which is go make the future. You get to see it and you get to participate in. Yeah, I love it. I think it's great. Milan, is there anything you'd like to add to the conversation that I didn't ask you about? The only last thing is for people who listen to the podcast, if you want to find out more about Six Sense, go to sixcents.hexagon.com. And if you're a budding startup and you're interested in what we do, there's also a nice big apply button. And you can always apply at any time of the year, regardless of the challenge. Let us know who you are, where do you exist? And we would love to learn more about any startup out there that's doing stuff in industrial tech. Fantastic. Well, Milan, I really appreciate you doing this today. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. 
If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.